Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Twenty-five Confirmation Sundays. That's how many there have been since I came to pastor here. I look at photographs of past classes found outside the fellowship hall, and I see young people, the faces of young people, who now have confirmation-age children who have older siblings in college. I see young people who later became Sunday school teachers, elders, and ordained ministers. I see the faces of committed church supporters who are helping their congregations provide the education and nurture that they received. Not all who went through confirmation class, though, can be found in those photos. Over the last quarter of a century, there have been a few who decided they weren't ready to join the church as adult members. And in almost every instance, when they explained it to me or they explained it to their confirmation teachers, their hesitancy had to do with having a hard time reconciling what they were learning in science classes and what they understood the Bible to say. And almost always, the book of Genesis was mentioned when they explained why. They learned in class that the universe is over 13 billion years old and the earth is over four and a half billion years old. So why should they believe this story where the earth is flat, where the world is created in six days and has water below and above? The bigger question that they were asking is, can one believe what both science and the Bible have to say? Now that is an important question for the modern age and is what I want to talk about after reading our passages. I'm going to switch testaments and start with our two verses from Romans. Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. Now let's go to our passage from the creation stories in Genesis, the stories that have inspired debate between those who want to defend science and those who want to defend the Bible. The verses come after we are told how God created the world in six days by separating waters so that space could be provided for land, where plants can grow, where animals can roam. Two human beings are created and are given a home in a garden. Listen. The Lord God took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall die. The word of the Lord. 
You heard it said, and I think you've noticed by looking at the bulletin, we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. I am glad the Bible story of creation is familiar to most of you because I can't tell it all. But the story tells us that in the middle of the Garden of Eden, there is this fruit tree. The text doesn't say what kind, but popular imagination has it as an apple tree, and that's what I need it to be for my sermon today. So today, it is going to be an apple tree. And underneath the apple tree stand Adam and Eve. They should not be there. First, there is a snake. Second, there is a talking snake. And third, God told them not to be there. I wouldn't be there. I wasn't born yesterday. But Adam and Eve were born yesterday, so there they are. Eat the apple, says the serpent. No, they respond. God told us not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest we die. That's kind of a formal response to a talking snake. The formality perhaps reflects their insecurity or their insincerity because it doesn't take much convincing for them to take and eat. You see, they really want to eat that apple. They want to eat that apple not because it looks tasty, but because they want a lasting epiphany. They want knowledge. And by knowledge, I mean certitude. They want to be certain about what is good and evil, what is right and wrong, what is acceptable and what is forbidden. Hey, they may even want God's authority to decide what is right and wrong, good and evil, what is acceptable and what is forbidden. And so they take and eat because they want what only God can have, certitude. It's wrong what they do. They do what later people of faith and people of science keep doing. They think that they can know what can't be known. Not till death, anyway. You see what Adam and Eve heard as a threat, lest you die? Might have been just God telling the truth. You want certitude? Well, at death, you'll have it. Now, we're going to say goodbye to Adam and Eve now as they're escorted out of the garden and the locks are changed. Let's visit another moment under an apple tree. But before I do, I want to set the stage. The moment I'm going to show you is one of the first moments of the modern era, a moment that helps jumpstart the age of science. But we need to understand something. The science of understanding the natural world where conclusions are drawn based on the best evidence of what we see, experience, and test has always been with us. There has never been an age without science. And the best science of the biblical day drew logical, logical conclusions based on the best evidence available. The world is flat. There is a dome in the sky. And everything in the sky, including the sun and stars and moon, move. That's what you could see. No one then was awed by what inspires all today. Distances of light years, our galaxy of billions of stars being just one of billions of galaxies in the vast expanse of space. There were no instruments to provide evidence of such things. They were awed by what they could see and understand. A flat earth that stretched beyond travel. A dome above that kept the waters of chaos from falling down on them. 
and a sun, moon, and stars that moved across the sky. And you know what? Think about it. They were not completely wrong. You can stand on flat ground. You can plumb a house. There is some kind of force that keeps the moon from falling to the earth or drifting away. Something is constantly moving in the sky, and some physicists are saying that everything in the sky moves because the universe is ever expanding. They did not get it all right in their day, and we don't get it all right in our day either. We have to keep revising what we assume to be true as we continue to explore the mystery that is reality. Now, the Bible was written with what was then assumed to be true in mind. Now, I want to go to a moment under another apple tree when some Bible day assumptions began to be challenged in a serious way. One late summer evening in 1666, Sir Isaac Newton sat under an apple tree at Worcestershire Manor, his birthplace and family home. The sky was beautiful with the moon anchoring it. Maybe Newton saw an apple fall, he later says so. Maybe one hits him on the head, others later say so. Whatever happens, Newton has an epiphany. He knows about gravity, but it occurs to him that maybe gravity is what holds the moon in its orbit. And the epiphany of that moment leads to years of developing the system, his system of universal gravitation. Something even greater is imagined than gravity's hold on the moon. For all of human history, most believe that the moon was placed and kept in its place by the hand of God. Newton was envisioning an explanation without God. And the later scientific revolution became a project to do the same. It's not that scientists did not believe in God. Many did. Many do. In fact, many scientists went to church on Sunday to praise God for the incredible order and wonder of the universe that they explored when they went to work on Monday. Most early leaders of the scientific revolution were believing Jews, Christians, and Muslims, many of whom worked in faith-based colleges and universities that were established because of a religious devotion to train the mind to pursue truth. But the sin of Adam and Eve keeps getting repeated. People of faith and people of science are tempted to grasp for certitude. It is the desire for certitude that led to some people of science to attack faith and some people of faith to attack science. Some people of faith were threatened by having a world explained without God, and they set out to prove that everything in the Bible is literally true. And some people of science set out to prove that there is no God, and the Bible is old world superstition. And poor Genesis. Soldiers of science set out to debunk the notions that the world is flat and was created in six days. Soldiers of faith thought that they were defending God by defending the claim that it took six literal days. Both, you see, were grasping for certitude to settle it once and for all. Is there a God? Is there not a God? Is the Bible true? Is it not true? One side thinking that they were proving that there is no God. The other side thinking that they were proving that there is. But both were trying to explain away mystery. 
Now, not everyone got caught up in this either-or game. There were those who tried to make room for both science and religion. Let science explain what can be explained, but let religion fill in the gaps. And along the way, some began to call God the God of the gap. But as more and more got explained, the gap seemed to narrow and God seemed to shrink. Now, I understand that way of going about it. But I think that's the wrong way to look at it, even if you want to embrace both science and religion. To explain, I have one more apple tree for you to visit. Karl Barth was a pastor of a church before he became a university professor and a famous theologian. He lived within the tension of science and religion. Pastors in the modern era who do not want to fight with science, progressive pastors, if you will, have a tendency to focus less on making a public witness to God and more on being relevant or helpful. And the way to find common ground with people of science, they thought, was just to leave God in the gap and join together with others in a common cause to make the world a better place. So social action became the focus of progressive pastors in Germany. And that was Bart early in his ministry. And though Bart never stopped being involved in what he saw as good social causes, I mean, we have to. We all want to be about making the world a better place. Justice matters. We want to work together to bring about those things that are important in God's kingdom. Though all of that still stayed true for him, his primary focus shifted radically back to witnessing that God is God. And that shift began under an apple tree when he had his own epiphany. I know this sounds like a plot twist in a bad script, that magical things keep happening under apple trees, but you know what? Sometimes what actually happens is cheesy. The year was 1917. Bart was working on a commentary on the book of Romans, and he sat under the apple tree trying to think through a Romans-inspired argument that God is actually at work in the world. He embraced science but he knew that science will always be a means of exploring but never solving the mystery that is reality. So how can he defend God or at least make space for God for those who want scientific proof? And then he had his epiphany. God's beyond defending. God cannot be proven or disproven. Faith is not to know God. Faith is to be known by God. When I try to explain this, I always talk about the experience of being loved. I will never have completely figured out those who love me, but I know, not here, I know I'm loved, and that love shapes me and calls me, pulls me out of myself. Faith is being known, loved, and claimed by the mystery that is God. As Romans says, we are transformed by the will of God. So you know what Bart did? He just quit defending God and quit defending the Bible. He was not resistant to or threatened by scientific theories, discoveries, or explanations. He rejected the idea that when it comes to science and religion, it has to be either or. For Bart, for him, it was both 
and because both are means of exploring the mystery. But Bart was going to witness to the God from whom all creation comes, the God that he came to know in Jesus Christ, the God who calls for reconciliation in the world, for the healing of wrongs, for the confessing of sins, even though that's not what physicists necessarily talk about. God is God was his transcendent truth, and that is what he preached and taught. Now, whether God is God makes sense to others was not something that he could control or had the right to control. That's the problem for people of faith or people of science. When we try to control, when we try to settle it, we have that certainty, we don't find faith. Faith is not proof. Faith is epiphany. In a few moments, you confirmands will be asked to affirm your faith by answering some questions. I'll just go ahead and affirm something of what I believe on my own. I'm an old philosophy major who appreciates science. But science is not my God. Like Karl Barth, I worry about how science can be used. He saw millions slaughtered by the best that technology could offer. I accept science, but my faith is in God. Though God is a mystery beyond proof, I believe in God because I believe I've had my own epiphanies of being known, being loved, and being claimed by God. Intellectually, I can't prove it, and I do doubt it sometimes. But my being loved and claimed by God defines me. I can't prove it, but I am trying to live it. That's my witness. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.